I feel like back in the days with Amazon, it's like it's like crack cocaine. Once you get on it, it's very hard to get off. Hello and welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm your host, Shwang Esther Shan. So I want to know if there's anything that helps you to sleep better. Well, if we ask Mark Zhang, it's adjustable blackout sleep mask that he and his team at Mantisleep have perfected. Being a light sleeper, Mark has always struggled with finding the ideal sleep mask, one that is breathable, lightweight, and able to stay on his face despite tossing or turning. Through countless product designs, successful crowdfunding campaigns, and an international expansion, Mantisleep is now an eight-figure business. Mark is here with me today to chat all about how he's scaling Mantisleep from a personal need. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. That was a great intro. Man, that makes me sound so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. And I want to start off by asking you, um, when you were searching for sleep masks, there's already countless on the market. What made you feel like you can change what is being offered and how did you differentiate yourself? I've been a light sleeper uh, for most of my life uh, since I was 15. I've been using sleep masks for a long time and I just knew intimately like <laughs> I always thought we could do something better. And at the time we were we were running a different business. My business partner and I was thinking about can we do something that was uh, a little bit more meaningful that that uh, actually was solving our own problem. And uh, so we started from there and the differentiation just came from trial and error, but it wasn't totally based on market research. Obviously, we went and looked at uh, all the competitors and what the customers were saying for for those products, but I had been using it for so long, I just intuitively knew sort of what to do and what to change and what to improve on. Tell us more about the product development process and what are some steps that you think all founders can follow? Product development process as it relates to you know e-commerce physical products, for us, it was like uh, pulling a tooth out, <laughs> multiple <laughs> two teeth out, pulling nails out. It was just a it was a grueling process. Prior to this, we were primarily doing private labeling. So that process is a lot easier, right? You go to the factory, they have something, an existing product, an existing manufacturing process. You take your thoughts and kind of make some tweaks. With Manta Sleep, we had to design everything from the ground up. And it was, you know, we're a lot better at it now because we've been, you know, working with these suppliers for five, six years at this point, And the relationship is there, the process is there, but develop, developing that very first Manta mask for Kickstarter, it was a tough process. It was, you know, we would try something and then we didn't have any, any ways to workshop it, to build it ourselves. And so we would bring it to the supplier. They would try to make something and it wouldn't work. We find out limitations. We had one idea at the design phase. Turns out you can't really do that at a mass manufacturing process. And it took a really, really long time. And I remember just thinking, man, I hope not every single product is going to be like this because otherwise we're never going to be able to get to, to, to grow, essentially. I, I think the best tip that I have is if at all possible to go and... Uh, fly to wherever your manufacturer is and just talk to them. Every time we go over, now I know things are a little, little there's a little bit more tension with China these days, but back then it wasn't so bad. We would fly over and, uh, you know, spend a week there. And the time we spent, you know, that, that, that essentially condenses the process by months at a time because of the communication and because you're there. So they have no choice but to work with you. They can't really just ignore you and have you sit around doing nothing. And that really helped to accelerate the process. But still, the first one, it took a really long time. I think it took a year, a year and a half to, to make that first uh, mask. 
So I guess there was a lot of nights sleeping with not desirable sleep masks for the sake of product testing. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so can you tell us why you decided to choose to run crowdfunding campaigns for Mantis Sleep? So I think the money is nice, right? Obviously having that funds to, to finance the first round of inventory. In our case, it was nice to have, but not a necessity. We had another relatively successful Amazon business prior to this. So we did have the cash if we really needed to, you know, push, you know, break the piggy bank and, and finance it ourselves. I think the other benefit of having a Kickstarter campaign is just the social proof, right? Getting featured in media and now us, what, five, six, seven years later, still talking about it. It's just a great social proof. It's a great validation and it has served us really well. So us going into it, that marketing aspect, that validation aspect was, was I would say, one of the primary reasons to do a Kickstarter campaign. I love that. And I think that's a really important note. It's not just for financials, it's for finding the first set of customers and also great for marketing as well. It tends to be easier when you're running Facebook ads, which we did during the Kickstarter campaign, uh, to, to convert them into backers. And then once you go out of the crowdfunding phase, now in our case, we had like 15,000 emails of potential buyers. And back then when Facebook's uh, interest group was still working pretty well, we would take that and then transition straight into the next phase. So it kind of is like a, uh, it's like rocket fuel to, for the transition into our own Shopify store. Yeah. Building out that email list and feeding into your funnel. So an important part of crowdfunding campaigns is the content. So how do you get people who can't try out your product actually interested what you, in what you have to say, essentially? How did you approach making your content? Probably the most difficult part uh, or most challenging part of the crowdfunding campaign is the video. And uh, we didn't have any experience making you know, product videos or sales videos prior to this. Well, we did a little bit, but we're definitely not pros because uh, we had done a couple of Kickstarter campaigns prior to this one. Uh, the best thing that that helped us that the, the, was we just went and looked at all of the uh, other successful crowdfunding campaigns. I think we went over like 50 or 60, watched the videos. And over time, it was, it, we, you know, we didn't create any sort of SOPs. It didn't turn us into video professionals or, 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 or sales video professionals. But you, over time, you just get get this feeling for what works and what doesn't. The hook at the beginning has got to be important. You got to have a lot of scenes that cut and changes over time. And so we really just try to emulate that when we created the first video. The other thing is for the Kickstarter campaign, copy-wise, it was, you know, I just wrote the copy uh, and it wasn't that big of a deal. There, there's a luck element involved as well in terms of the communication. I think with the way that our product ended up looking, which wasn't necessarily what we were planning to do when we started the design process, but customers kept on saying it looked like a mini bra on your face. And I think it was just, it was just weird looking enough compared to what people's expectations were of a sleep mask that it kind of interrupted whatever it is they're doing, whether they're scrolling through social media or Kickstarter, and really got them to stop and say, hey, let's take a look at this weird thing on my screen. So you weren't intentionally making bra-like face masks. <laughs> uh, I wish that was part of our genius. It was not. We just, <laughs> we landed on a design that worked. Never even occurred to us that anybody would describe this as a mini bra, but the comments were, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of comments like that. Definitely helps. So after the campaign, you know, you raised enough to fund this project. How do you then convert that and do the next stage of marketing, ensure that there's a ripple effect from those campaigns? We had learned from the previous Amazon business that to have a pure 
Amazon business was a dangerous thing because Amazon can shut you down at any time. So that was a lesson learned. And so for Man to Sleep, the strategy from the get-go was we're going to do the Kickstarter campaign and then transition straight into Shopify and build Shopify for a couple of years, really get our, you know, our email list, our branding down before we then went back to Amazon using it more as a channel strategy. I think the, what, what I did, and I think in retrospect was very, uh, I'm glad I chose this option. When we were doing the Kickstarter campaign, we were contemplating about, should we hire one of these agencies that did Kickstarter for you and they would run ads and whatnot? Or should we take the money and just try, try it ourselves to do it? And in the end, I decided, and we spent about, I think $50,000 in the end to run uh, ad campaigns for the Kickstarter campaign. And I just, but if you were to use an agency and then took a cut, you would probably spend roughly the same, if not a little bit more. So I thought to myself, I would just take, take that 50 grand and use that as an education fund for myself. And that process helped me to learn Facebook ads when we were doing the Kickstarter campaign. And then the transition to Shopify was very smooth because you have the email list already. And I had already picked up a bunch of skills in terms of running Facebook ads. And it was easier in 2016 anyway, compared to now. And then I just started uh, building that process up. And then rather than diverting traffic to Kickstarter, sending them over to the Shopify store. Sending them to a place of your own, essentially. Yeah. Yes. I'm chatting with Mark Zhang, co-founder and CEO of Mantisleep, the makers of 100% blackout sleep masks. So you mentioned that Amazon is used as a distribution channel, something that's complementary to your own business. Um, tell us how other founders can kind of implement the same kind of philosophy and make sure that it is, in a sense, a channel that helps your business. A couple of years ago, I used to hear a narrative that was being told often in the e-commerce community, which was that Amazon would be a great place to launch a business. And then you would start on Shopify and, and the rest. But our experience has been a little bit different. I keep telling my team uh, this. I feel like back in the days with Amazon, it's like, it's like crack cocaine. Once you get on it, it's very hard to get off because you put a product up. The sales are coming in. The profit margins are amazing. And there's just very little motivation to do anything else rather other than just getting that fat margin on, on Amazon. And of course, the danger with that is you might get suspended one day with no good reason and there's no recourse. Right? And I'm sure anybody who's sold on Amazon will will know what that feels like. So that's what happened to us. And so it was very conscious for us to, to, to be an actual business with our own store with control over traffic, control over email. But now, again, I'm not saying don't sell on Amazon. It's 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 a very much a complementary uh, channel once, because Amazon's huge, they're, they're a juggernaut, don't fight them, might as well uh, leverage their platform and profit. But what we did was we set up Shopify so that we have a foundation, and then we went over to Amazon. And once you get both of these uh, platforms set up, there's a halo effect. So when you're running cold traffic, for example, on Google or on Facebook, some of those customers... Um, will inevitably go to Amazon and search Mantis Sleep Mask because they want to, you know, there's Prime and they can get it shipped faster and whatnot. That helps to drive the Amazon listing up. Um, so your ranking goes up and then you start being able to leverage more and more of Amazon's traffic. And then I would say the other way it works the same way where if somebody goes to Amazon and because we, we don't have the full product portfolio on Amazon, only the, some of the hero products, they will go to Amazon, see all of the positive reviews and then immediately have much greater trust for your brand because people trust the reviews on Amazon more so than reviews on your website. Then they can actually come back to our own website and buy the additional accessories that's not offered on Amazon. So when you combine everything together, one plus one in this case is greater to, than two because you have that halo effect of marketing where you 
don't really achieve if you just focused on one or the other platform individually. Yeah, I love that complementary process. Tell us a bit about how you perfected the purchasing journey on your own site. And what did you do in the early days to make sure that it is a really easy and streamlined process for your customers? I don't know if it's been perfected yet. We are still working very hard on it to this day. But the uh, journey back then, and we had one product coming out of Kickstarter. It was a very simple funnel. We had on the top, on, on the top of the funnel, Facebook ads, and then later Google ads. Uh, in terms of search, in terms of shopping. And then it would go to a product page. And then that was it. We didn't have any other products. And so then the back end of that would just be email marketing to try to sell them additional masks. And so why would they buy additional masks after they bought one? A lot of people will want to get one if they have a positive experience for their loved ones, which that, that angle has worked really well for us. Others, people seem to lose their masks all the time when they go traveling. So that was another source of reoccurring revenue. And of course, we had retargeting. So the funnel was super simple, just traffic from, from ads, go to the product page, email marketing with, uh, you know, um, we had sent out some content and some um, uh, information about sleep and then also try to upsell them an additional mask. That was it. very simple. Of course, it's, it's a lot more, um, I wouldn't say complicated, but it's a lot more developed these days. But the fundamentals are the same. Well, tell us a bit about the marketing stack now. Because in the early days, you mentioned you had that $50,000 in budget. You mostly put it towards Facebook. After iOS 14, the landscape is extremely different. So where are you dividing up your spending now? We're trying to diversify the traffic as much as possible these days. I think I would say... Actually, post iOS 14.5, things were bad, but I th- this year, 2022, things seems to have recovered across the board, uh, not to the levels prior to the update, but I see many e-com businesses in my network um, having a better time this year compared to before. Nowhere near as good, but so we're doing Facebook, we're doing YouTube, we're doing um, Google ads. And we're also heavily investing into TikTok, um, as many e-com businesses are today, both in terms of organic as well as cracking the uh, paid advertising channel. So these three combined, they're our primary um, top of the funnel traffic. Plus, we are we started doing SEO, taking SEO much more seriously at the beginning of this year. And so really, it's about it, it, it's not like before where there's one single trick channel you can just keep you know, turning up the dial and, and being able to succeed. Now it's much more about diversification. So all of these channels, and of course, on the back end, we have email marketing, we have SMS going, and we also have taken what has been working so well in the US market and replicated internationally to, to the UK. And so I was just doing a talk recently about that. We've been able to achieve a 25% lift in revenue uh, as a result of us expanding into UK and EU with the same playbook, the same funnel, you just copy and paste from the US to those markets because it's English speaking. So that's how we've been sort of diversifying and, and trying different things. So you mentioned this expansion into the English speaking markets within Europe and the UK. Tell us about that international expansion. Once the US was established, and by means we're still growing in the US, um, I think one of the things that people maybe think about when it comes to international expansion is that it's a very expensive, complicated process. We've gone through it. And what I can say, it's actually simple in the sense that once you break the components down into each piece, um, it's simple, but it's not necessarily easy because you do have to invest time, effort 
into it. And the way that we did it was we started off by um, selling on Amazon internationally first. So we're on Amazon.com and then we would sell on .co.uk.au for Australia, .ca for Canada. That is almost like a stepping stone or the Trojan horse because Amazon provides an absolute ton of resources to help their sellers expand internationally. So by the time we were done with that process, done as in we started selling in these international Amazon marketplaces, we had already gone through a lot of the preparation work needed for a successful international expansion. So things like you know, getting your VAT done, being connected with the service providers that Amazon recommends, like uh, accountants, taxation, import, all the stuff, all the, all the boring and, you know, uh, stuff that you don't really want to deal with a, a, on an international expansion level. So that really helped. And so by the time we were ready to expand with our own Shopify store, you know, 80% of the work, the compliance work that needs to be done has already been done. And it was literally just taking inventory shipping it to wherever the destination is and start selling on our store. And so that has been a, that's what the, the process that I usually recommend to people. Uh, you could do it yourself and do all the research, but Amazon gives you a bunch of resources. You, so you might as well use them to help you with that. Um, but I would say don't stop at Amazon. And this goes back to the earlier point that we were talking about, which is the halo effect of marketing. When you go into a new um, international market, most likely people don't have the brand awareness that they do in your home market. So if you just sell on Amazon, you're very much limited to the traffic in that one place. And plus, you know, it, a lot of the sales is dependent on rankings. You're not ranking very high. You're dependent only on the traffic on Amazon. But once you start going in with your Shopify store, once you start running top of the funnel um, awareness of traffic on Facebook and Google, then that halo effect starts building again. Then people are like, oh, what is this? This is cool. They would go to the uh, you know international Amazon marketplace, start buying there, your ranking goes up and it sort of benefits both ways again. I also love that it goes back to your philosophy of having your own business and using Amazon as that complementary channel. So you mentioned international expansion lifted the business by 25%. What are some other things that you've done really helped you to move from seven figures to eight figures? Once you have the marketing stack in place and, and you know, the basics, and when I say the basics, I mean, you know, top of funnel traffic, you got your retargeting, you got your email marketing, something on the back end, then the, then the fundamental driver of growth after that is product development. Uh, so the uh, adding additional value to our existing customers and then offering different types of experiences for potential customers as well as new customers. I think that once the marketing stuff is taken care of, that that is probably the the source of our growth, uh, the core source, of, the fundamental source of our growth. So we started off with one mask and then we started doing different experiences. For example, we would have cooling ones, warming ones, we had weighted ones. Uh, and then we started doing um, sort of like tiered versions. If you want the basic experience, you get this. And then the next best thing is this. So then people have a lot more options. And then we also have aromatherapy and different kinds of accessories. Um, and we're about to launch something really cool. I won't talk about it so much now, but uh, uh, later this year, just taking customers feedback. Um, people always ask me, how can we have so many different sleep masks? Like a lot of people, a lot of times people think, you know, once a customer has one mask, why would they need additional ones? And that's been a question that I've always found to be uh, funny because I thought the same thing. But as we got customer feedback and they just keep requesting for new things to develop, we just take this feedback and develop new products and people seem to love them. So yeah, that's been a, a really primary driver for growth for us in terms of uh, product development. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think new products, complementary products definitely helps with um, increasing your revenue stream. How have you made it easier for customers to give you feedback? And what did you do to build that feedback loop? We have a post-purchase email that gets sent out to every single customer asking them uh, a few questions, not nothing too complicated. I think it's got four or five questions. How was your experience? Anything we can improve on? What did you check out? Uh, before getting man to sleep? And do you have any product recommendations? So when we started, that was uh, just a goldmine of information for us. Now we've developed a few other processes. Uh, One is periodically, we would actually send out a a survey to the entire email list or a big segment uh, with incentives and asking people to help us answer questions, Uh, not only for product development, but also segmentation, what their struggles are. And then we also get a surprisingly a ton of feedback on social media and customers replying to emails just with feedback even if they haven't completed the survey so they'll let our cs team know and our social team know and we collect a bunch of feedback that way as well on the flip side of that how do you encourage reviews and referrals because i think that's also a big chunk of that social proof as well in terms of reviews we use uh on on amazon it is what it is on our shopify store we use an app called stamped Io. They improve on the basic uh, Shopify review process. And we don't really do too much. I, I think we, we send one email at the very end after 21 days after the person has received the product just to say, hey, if you loved it, uh, we, we would really appreciate it if you left a review. And that's about the extent that we do. And then in terms of referrals, I know, I mean, there's referral programs and whatnot, but I, I think ultimately, fundamentally, people would recommend your product if they have a positive experience. So the marketing sells the product, but whether people recommend it, talk about it, share it with their friends, it just really depends on the experience that they have. And to in terms of this aspect, I, I, I think I'm quite proud in terms of what our product team has been able to do. I think the products are kick-ass and that's why people have been talking and sharing about it so much. So earlier you mentioned there's a lot of admin, taxes, bureaucracy, the boring side of business that comes with international expansion. Can you share if there's anything else that really helped you in the process? Yeah, you definitely have to have a team. Uh, I, I think on the finance side, I I came from an accounting background. It was it was a nightmare of a time, but I do have some of those basics down. From an operations perspective, you know our team. And my life changed once our project manager came on board two two and a half years ago. Uh, it just it just made all the difference. I, I would highly recommend you to have the infrastructures in place. So I would say, and this is not just for international expansion. This is for growth, but also your sanity as a founder. Uh, you, you have to have a couple pillars in place. Uh, one is obviously the marketing stack, but then when it comes to logistics and operations, those two are also critical pillars for successful international expansion. And for us, that was developed as a result of us having a project manager, and then we would hire additional support around that. You really don't, with the international expansion or growth for that matter, there are a bunch of administrative tasks that need to be done. Like there's no way around it. You can you can optimize and minimize as much as possible. But to, for us to have two marketplaces to maintain the, the workload, while it might not double, it's definitely going to increase by at least 30, 40%. So you, you want to have team members dedicated to operations, to replicating stores, updating content, and you want to make sure that they have um, some extra capacity before you take on this endeavor. I would say maybe 20, 30% extra capacity, uh, just so otherwise it's it's 
it's going to burn out the team. And tell us a bit about your hiring process and also the process as the founder that at a certain point you need to let go of responsibilities and get additional team members to actually help you do some of the work. Yeah, I, I think from a hiring process perspective, probably maybe the most important thing that I that I can mention is to make sure that you as a founder clearly define what it is that you believe in, what your values are. Um, I, I don't, you know, when we, we don't hire that fast and our interview process is quite rigorous because at the end of the day, we spend a lot of time working with the people on the team. So we want to make sure all of our values are aligned and we're having a good time. We don't want to just stick people in there for the sake of doing a job but that, that destroys the culture. And so what has changed our hiring process in the last couple of years when we first started, it was we have a job to do. Here's what you got to do. Come and do this job. Now the process is really about here's who we are. Here's what we believe in. Do you believe in this? Kind of like Simon Sinek, right? Start with why. Here are the things that we believe in. Here are the values that we have. If you find these values exciting, come and join us. Uh, If not, there are better options for you. This is really the message that we've been sending. And by doing this, I think we've been able to attract people who are just much more aligned with the culture and the value. And plus, they would protect uh, the value once they come in. And that the, the, the value and the culture is such an important aspect of growth. Um, I can't emphasize it enough. You really want to make sure you have the right people in to preserve the culture. Because once the culture gets destroyed, then it just ends up being like any other place. And the magic disappears, right? Then the, the, the closeness and the cohesion disappears. And then in terms of delegation, I, I, I wish I had a better answer for it. I think it was just a natural process. I, when we were in the earlier days, I thought I, we would have, I would have trouble letting things go, but it didn't, didn't turn out to be the case. It was once I let things go and people did it better than I do, uh, which is pretty much in all of the case, right? Like our, our ad manager does as much better than I do. Our project manager does project management much better than I do. Then I see it and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Should have done it sooner. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing all the tips. I want to know what's next for Mantisleep or what are the projects that you can actually tell us about? We're still very super excited about the brand uh, and we're going to be, we're going to be working hard on it for many more years to come. I think what excites me the most these days is the product development side. I love products. I love playing with products. So I'm spending a lot of my time working with the product development team. We're just excited to share these products. We use them. We're excited to share these products with the world. And so that's what's been driving a lot of the the motivation um, and, and sort of the work behind what we're doing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mark. Thanks for having me. This was fun. That's Mark Zhang, CEO of Mantisleep. I'm Shwang Esther Shan, and I'll catch you next time on Shopify Masters.